So how about we just start with something that Jesus said. In fact, he said it twice on the night before his death. So he must really want us to do this. We just read it in John 14, 1. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then again, 26 verses later, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The context of that is Jesus telling Peter that he will deny him three times. So this is the night before Jesus died in the upper room, and Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Wow. I think my heart would be troubled if I swore unswerving commitment to Jesus, and then he told me that I would deny him not once, not twice, but three times. The reality is that I have made statements like Peter, swearing my undying devotion to Jesus only to find myself walking away, denying him, turning to sin to be satisfied. We all have, haven't we? We all have this week, right? So what do we do with our fickle little selves We listen to Jesus. That's what we do. And that's never a bad idea, is it? We listen to Jesus who says to us today, let not your hearts be troubled. Whatever you did this week, let not your heart be troubled. Whatever is going on in your life right now that's keeping you up at night, let not your heart be troubled. Whatever trouble you are facing, Let not your heart be troubled. Whatever is going on in that little heart of yours this morning, let not your heart be troubled. Now, of course, we all have plenty of reasons to have our hearts be troubled this morning, don't we? David did too, as we'll see in Psalm 25. Turn there now in your Bibles. We're going to look at the last half of Psalm 25 today that we started like two weeks ago. I should probably apologize. We started a new series, and then we had a baptism, went to a different passage, and then we spontaneously went on a little trip, Heather and I, and so we skipped town. And so we're coming back to the last half of Psalm 25 that we started three weeks ago in a new series. You're not supposed to do that, I think. It reminds me of like, do you remember 8-Tracks? I thought of this. I thought, I'm going to have to split up this sermon. Ario Speedwagon, if you remember them. That band, on one of their eight tracks, as, as it switched from like track one to track two, for you younger people, you're just going to have to Google it, okay? In the middle of the guitar solo, it fades out, and then switches to the next track, and then the guitar solo fades it back in. Terrible timing. That's how eight tracks were. This was terrible timing for me to start a new series and then take a break for two weeks. So anyway, we're back in Psalm 25. And we're going to look at the last half today where we will see that David has all kinds of reasons why he should have a troubled heart. In fact, David will tell us that his heart is stretchy. His heart is stretchy because troubles just keep piling into his heart. His heart is crammed full of troubles. His heart is stuffed, bloated with troubles. And maybe yours is today too. 
Okay, then, let's see what we can do about all that. Psalm 25, look at verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. So David continues his thought in verse 12. He just said in verse 11 that his guilt was great, and now he talks about fearing the Lord, fearing Yahweh. But what's the connection here? Does being aware of your sin, being aware of your great guilt, lead to fearing the Lord? Well, sort of. I mean, yes, it does. When you are aware of how great your guilt is because of breaking God's commands, then it should lead to fear of the Lord. But what is the fear of the Lord? What does that even mean? The fear of the Lord means two different things, one for the believer and one for the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, appearing before God the judge and having to give account of their life, of every thought, word, deed, and motive, that should strike fear in an unbeliever. Because without God's forgiveness, without Christ's righteousness, we could never approach God and we would never want to. Without the cross, God would only be a dreadful judge of whom we would be afraid. Without the cross, we would be scared to death of God. And unbelievers will be scared to death of God on that final day when they have to give an account of their life. But for the believer, to fear God isn't to be afraid of him. Let me say that again. For the believer, to fear God is not to be afraid of him. To fear God for the believer is to live with this sense of awe and wonder at his unfailing love for sinners like us as found in his son Jesus. Being afraid of God, being scared to death of God, like an unbeliever should and will be on that final day, being afraid of God and being scared of God is not the same thing as fearing the Lord for God's children. To fear the Lord for the Christian is the awe and the wonder and the marvel that overcomes us as we embrace the staggering, mind-blowing truth that in Christ, God loves and forgives rebellious sinners and unites them to his son, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit and declares them righteous and adopts them into his forever family. And so the fear of God is actually a sweet, beautiful doctrine. I mean, who'd have thunk? The fear of the Lord is a sweet, beautiful doctrine. And when you get it into your bloodstream, it will cause you to enjoy God. I mean, imagine that. The fear of the Lord can actually cause you to enjoy God. And it's good news. In fact, it's something that you and I need every day because it's this awe and wonder that an infinitely holy and righteous God sent his one and only son to save you. It's joyful trembling. It's, it's trusting awe. That's the fear of the Lord. That's how I would describe it for the believer. It's joyful trembling. 
It's trusting awe. So to fear God for the believer isn't to be afraid of him. To fear God is to live in awe of his unfailing love for us in Jesus. So one, being afraid and terrified of God, and two, having a biblical gospel-centered fear of the Lord are as opposite as law and gospel are opposite. The idea of fear here that David speaks of in verse 12 is one of gratitude and awe, this sheer gratitude for his forgiveness that then drives us to love and to serve Jesus, to be in awe of such a kind, merciful, forgiving God. Forgiveness then becomes the fertile soil for growing a right and correct fear of God. Understanding and believing and receiving God's forgiveness is the fertile soil that will help you grow a right and correct fear of God. It's why David spoke about forgiveness and mercy in verses 6 to 11. And it's why he now moves on to fearing the Lord in verse 12. The gospel turns our natural dread of God as rebellious sinners into joyful, trembling adoration of beloved children. And that is exactly what has transpired in Psalm 25 between verse 11 and verse 12. David fears and he is in awe of Yahweh that he is so merciful. Michael Reeves says, It is the devil's work to promote a fear of God that makes people afraid of God such that they want to flee from God. The Spirit's work is the exact opposite to produce in us a wonderful fear that wins and draws us to God. So where does the fear of the Lord come from? David tells us in Psalm 25, it comes from sensing the kindness and the love of Jesus. It's mercy, it's his steadfast love, it's his goodness. All the things that David has been talking about in verses 6 through 11. And so the fear of the Lord is not doom and gloom. It's actually sensing the love and kindness of God. It's being in awe of God. And David is in awe of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, because he is a God who forgives sinners like you and like me. But as we saw in Psalm 25 several weeks ago, David tells us again that Yahweh also leads his people. And David returns to that idea again here in verse 12. To those who are in awe of Yahweh, they will be led by him, David says in verses 12 and 13. Their soul will be well. However, when your heart is full of troubles, like David is in Psalm 25, sometimes you don't feel like your soul is abiding in well-being, as David says here. So what do we do with that? Because in verses 12 through 13, David says, the man or the woman who fears the Lord will, one, be instructed by the Lord, two, their kids will inherit the land, and three, their soul will be well. But if you've been a Christian for very long, you know that sometimes you feel like all is not well with your soul. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you know that both of these realities can be true at the same time. Yes, you have troubles. Yes, you get stressed. Yes, you pace the floor and bite your fingernails. And yet, all can be well with your soul. How? It's like the old hymn says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, 
When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. See, it's right there. You've been singing the, verse, the truths of Psalm 25 your whole life when you were singing those verses. Whether you have peace that is flowing like a steady uh, river or whether you have sorrows that hit you like wave after wave after wave and just keep knocking you down, Jesus, Christian, has taught you to say that it is well with your soul. David said that in verse 12. Yahweh will instruct or teach the man or woman who fears him, who is in awe of him. Yahweh will teach you Whether you have peace or whether you have sorrow, he will teach you to say, it is well with my soul. Yes, life is hectic. I'm dying on the inside. But it is well with my soul. He will teach you. He will lead you, David says, in the midst of your sorrows, in the midst of your troubles. And you will get to know him more intimately as you experience trouble and sorrow. As David Pallison said, we come to know God by needing him. Some of the mercies we need, we only discover in affliction. There are some things about God, there are some things about his mercy that we can only learn in affliction, in trouble, in sorrow, in trial. Only learn when we suffer. Only learn when we realize just how needy we really are. That's discipleship 101. It's just the way it is. You can actually become an even more profound disciple by undergoing suffering, trouble, sorrows. So those places of loss and anguish and suffering and despair that we experience in this fallen world, those are the places where God is our only hope. We were just singing it. Jesus, you're my living hope. Those are the places where that becomes true. Those places of loss and anguish and suffering and despair and trouble, those are the places where God is most present because those are the places where you really need him. I mean, you need him in those places. You don't feel like you need him when all is going well. But when you go to one of those dark places, you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, Jesus, I need you. You needed him just as bad when things were easy. But you sense that in the darkness, don't you? And that's also the place where the deepest, most profound people in all the world can be found. People who suffer deeply are the most profound people you will ever meet because they usually meet God in those dark places. They would tell you that they would never have chosen those places of loss, trouble, anguish, suffering, and despair, but that's where God comforted them. That's where they came to know Jesus on a deeper level and they are different people now. We come to know God more and more when we suffer. As we recognize just how much we need him, we come to know him. And so you can say that it is well with your soul because who is your friend? It's Jesus. 
David says that the friendship of Yahweh, the friendship of the Lord, is for those who fear him. Jesus, your friend, says to you right now, Christian, let not your hearts be troubled. Because Jesus is our friend, we don't have to fear the unknown or fear what might happen or fear anything but the Lord. Look at verse 14. Such an amazing verse. (laughs) Let it hit you. Buckle up, okay, and then let the weighty truth of this hit you. The friendship of of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant my eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net can you believe it says that we can be friends with Jesus in fact Jesus called us his friends in John 15 didn't he he said you are my friends if you do what I command you No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. I think Jesus has Psalm 25 in mind when he says this in John 15. I just made the connection this week. I'd never seen it before. Jesus mentions both friendship and God making things known to his friends. Two things that David mentions here. Friendship with the Lord is available for those who fear him, who are in awe of him, and come to him with joyful trembling. The Hebrew word here for friendship is sowed, and it speaks of this deep intimacy, that there is this close, intimate communion between God and his people where he reveals his heart as well as his will to his people. God reveals his heart to us. David says in verse 14, God reveals his covenant to us. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that God reveals his covenant to us? Ralph Davis answers best here, I think. He says this, it means God leads him to grasp something of the breadth and length and height and depth of that covenant relationship. That Yahweh unpacks more and more of the riches of that covenant relation. And part of that must involve seeing far more of the sheer wonder and delight of God's own nature and ways with his people. It's why the God of the Bible is not boring. For as the fountain of living waters, he is always refreshing us with striking and comfort-laden views of himself. In the middle of suffering, in the middle of trouble, in the middle of sorrow, in the middle of trials, God keeps revealing himself to us. He refreshes us with striking and comfort-laden views of himself. I love that. Let me ask you, have you experienced this kind of refreshment? Have you experienced the friendship of Jesus? Maybe you're here today And your heart is cold. Your heart is cold to the Lord. You've just been kind of drifting, kind of on autopilot. Maybe you feel far away from God. Maybe you feel distant from Jesus. Come back. You can enjoy his close, intimate friendship again. Just come. Cry out to him. You don't have to do anything. There's no hoops to jump through. Nothing like that. You just come back and say, I'm here, Jesus. Help me. 
cry out to him and he will meet you where you are and you can enjoy the sweet, intimate friendship of Jesus again. We're going to have two devotionals in the vine this week. That's a devotions that we email out uh, to the church. We have two devotions in the, divine, in the vine this week that talk about how to enjoy your Bible reading and how to be yourself in prayer. They will help you rekindle your friendship with Jesus again. And I hope you do that today. Rekindle your friendship with your Savior. Experience times of intimacy again. Don't you want to love your first love again? You can do that by listening to him in his word and by talking to him in prayer. It's that simple. David does that in Psalm 25, and he's clearly down in the dumps here. You see it at the very beginning in verse 1. Right out of the gate in Psalm 25, life stinks for David. But David hits the brakes, and he says, if you will, no more. I'm not going any deeper into this hole. So he begins Psalm 25 by saying, To you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. And then he pours his heart out. And now he says here in verse 15 that his eyes are ever toward the Lord. So he starts Psalm 25 by going to the Lord. Then he dumps his heart out. And then he returns in verse 15 and says, My eyes are on the Lord. So David goes from Yahweh to his problems, back to Yahweh to his problems, on and on. And you can do that too. And that's okay because this, this is discipleship. This is the life of a disciple. There are no superheroes in God's family. Just a bunch of weak people who after falling down deeper and deeper into our own sin and sadness, we finally stop and we look up to our Savior again. That's discipleship and that's David here in Psalm 25. It's always turning our eyes back to Jesus. You go to God in prayer, you pour your heart out, and you may experience peace like a river for a while. But then more problems come. Or you remember the problems that you just dumped out on the Lord. And then you have to go back to the Lord in prayer again. You do what David does here. My eyes are ever toward you. This is normal Christianity, okay? No one arrives. We all occasionally slip down into the pit of despair. And then we look up to Jesus. And before you know it, we're down in that same hole again. Or as David says here, we're caught in a net. He uses more of a bird imagery. And life is like that sometimes, isn't it? You feel trapped in your circumstances whether you brought them on yourself or whether they just barged into your life uninvited, sometimes you feel like you're a bird caught in a net, fluttering about, trying desperately to get out. And what do you do then? You go to your friend Jesus. You look up to Jesus. My eyes are ever toward you. Don't believe the lie that someday you will become a super Christian who doesn't need Jesus as much as you used to. Or doesn't need Jesus as much as that guy. That dude's got problems. He needs Jesus. I need him sometimes. You will never get to that place. You will never get to a place where life will be easy. Or you'll never end up caught in a proverbial net. Why? Because weakness 
is the way of a disciple. Neediness is the way. Crying out in desperation is the way until Jesus comes. And having your heart get stretched and pulled by an unending stream of problems is sometimes the way. And that's what David says next. Look at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Notice how David just piles up all these words here to describe how he feels. Lonely, afflicted, troubles, distresses, affliction, trouble. And then he brings up his foes again that he mentioned all the way back in verse 2. He's got people who are hating on him. He's got enemies. So he's just pouring it all out to the Lord here. And he says he's lonely. He feels all alone. David uses the Hebrew word here for lonely that is used elsewhere for an only child or only having one of something. In other words, David is saying something like this. I feel like I'm the only one going through this. I feel like I'm the only one who has troubles that are stretching out my heart. Turn to me, Lord, and be gracious to me. Bring me out of this distress. Don't you feel like that sometimes? Like you're the only one suffering, the only one with problems, the only one experiencing trouble and affliction. We've all been there, haven't we? That may be you today. Do you feel all alone? Like you're the only one suffering? Or like David, do you ever feel like you don't have any friends? That's real, isn't it? Let David remind you, that you have a friend, the man of sorrows, who is near. The Apostle Paul experienced this. He tells us in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, that all his friends left him. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Paul was deserted by all his friends. He's all alone. And then he says, but the Lord. What sweet words those are, but the Lord. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. You know what, you can pray that when you feel lonely and afflicted and when people have deserted you, you can just pray, Jesus, stand by me and strengthen me. Jesus, stand by me and strengthen me. Jesus, stand by me and strengthen me. I've prayed that before. That's all I could get out. So much going on in my head. Spinning, heart was like an ocean, just just wave after wave. And all I could pray was, Jesus, stand by me and strengthen me. Jesus, stand by me and strengthen me. It was all I could get out. And my heart was stretched and it was weak. It was the only prayer I could get out. But it was enough. And I'm telling you, I could feel my Savior draw near. I felt his intimate, strong presence with me, holding me up, keeping me from going crazy. He's like that, you know. He'll do that for you today. He specializes in keeping disciples from going crazy. And sometimes he does that by simply answering the prayer, Jesus, stand by me and strengthen me. Well, what does all this suffering and loneliness do to one's heart? 
David says that the troubles of his heart have enlarged. It's like his heart is his stre- it's stretchy. It expands more and more with every bit of trouble that comes into his life. The Hebrew is, troubles have enlarged my heart. Technically, the Hebrew is, trouble my heart enlarged. It's more Yoda, I think, you know. Trouble my heart enlarged. Hebrew kind of works that way. Um, David's troubles have pushed and expanded the boundaries of his heart. Uh, There's more and more coming in. He's lonely. He's afflicted. There's troubles. There's distresses. There's affliction, trouble, foes, enemies. They're all in there. They're all crammed into David's heart. And that's how it is sometimes, right? It's like, it's not like you just have one problem and that's all that can go into your heart. Like one per customer, one trouble per disciple. It doesn't work that way, does it? Sometimes it's that way. Sometimes you're just dealing with one weighty thing, one issue. But there are other times where it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand problems that have barged into our hearts. Like David in Psalm 25. David's troubles have just barged into his heart uninvited. And just when David's heart could not hold any more, here comes more trouble. And that's life in this world, whether you're a Christian or not. The difference is that Christians have a friend when they suffer like this. His name is Jesus, the one who stands by us and strengthens us as our hearts get stretched and stretched and stretched. As David Pallison said, you are living in a world where there is trouble but you are in a relationship with a God who is in charge of his world. That's Psalm 25 in a nutshell. You will have trouble, but you have a friend. So life just keeps piling it on, David. And so David piles up all these words here in Psalm 25, like lonely, afflicted, troubled, distressed, to describe how he feels. Understand this, David is not afraid to tell God how he feels, and we shouldn't be either. Sometimes we don't do this when we pray, and we should. We should tell God exactly how we're feeling. In his book, Pray With Your Eyes Open, Richard Pratt explains how creative and detailed our prayers should be. He says, many Christians have difficulty putting their troubles into words when they pray. At home and church, we pick up the idea that only positive words are acceptable in prayer. So we never learn how to express negative attitudes to God. Notice the distinctive manner in which the psalmist speaks of himself. He does not simply say, Lord, I am sad. Instead, he uses a number of images to paint a vivid portrait of himself. In our prayers, we too can use vivid images and detailed descriptions of our condition. If we face rejection, we may feel like worthless rubbish. If this is how we feel, we should express that sentiment in prayer. We should talk about our sense of uselessness. Christians who suffer from loneliness can see themselves withering like thirsting plants. They should communicate their intense longing for a friend in dramatic terms. Prayer gives us the opportunity to tell God what we think about ourselves. 
Stirring portraits of our lives can help us lay our burdens at the feet of Christ and open ourselves more fully to his comfort and healing. We too are invited to relate detailed and moving accounts of events in our lives. From small irritations to major crises, we may talk with God in detail about our circumstances. Just find an image and say, God, I feel like my heart's going to explode, Jesus. I can't take it anymore. God, I'm so stressed. I think I'm going to go crazy. God, I can't stop thinking about this. God, I feel like a withering plant. I'm dying. I was once green and flourishing, and now I'm wasting away. I'm thirsty. I need you, Jesus. You find something, and you just tell him about it. In other words, you just spill the beans when you pray. Tell God all about it. Tell him you're lonely. Tell him you're afraid. Tell him what might happen if he doesn't answer your prayers. Give him reasons why he should answer you. Can you make an argument for why God should answer your prayers? Can you think through what would happen if he doesn't answer you and then turn around and tell that to God? God, if you don't answer this prayer, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to lose it. God, if you don't answer this prayer, this is going to happen. And I don't know how I'm going to react to that. If that happens, God, I need you to come through. Can you tell him what will happen or won't happen if he doesn't answer you? Do you give God good reasons why he should answer your prayers? Call on the Lord to consider, to observe, see what you're going through. You can do that in prayer. David does that. Look at verse 18. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. So David piles up all these words for his troubles that we've seen, but notice that His sins are still there in verse 18, aren't they again? He piles up these words and then he says, oh, and forgive all my sins. He knows that this is his biggest problem. Yes, he is suffering. Yes, his heart is being stretched by all his troubles, but there's a deeper issue with his heart and it's his sin. He knows that he needs grace. He knows that he needs forgiveness. He knows that he needs mercy. And that's discipleship. We are always aware of the sin and the suffering in our hearts, aren't we? So Psalm 25 is just a picture of the life of a struggling disciple. One, my guilt is great. And two, my troubles have enlarged my heart. My guilt is great and my troubles have enlarged my heart. That's discipleship this side of eternity. Big guilt and stretchy hearts. And so what do you do about all these weighty things that weigh down our hearts? You go to Jesus with both of those things. You go to Jesus with your guilt. And you go to Jesus with your troubles. And when you go to Jesus with your guilt and you go to Jesus with your troubles, he says to you, let not your hearts be troubled. As you wait, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because Jesus will preserve you. That's the idea behind what David says in verse 21. When he says, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. David is not speaking of his own integrity here. 
He's told us repeatedly, his heart is full of sin, his guilt is great. David is asking the Lord's integrity and the Lord's uprightness, the Lord's character to preserve him. He already told us in verse 9, Yahweh is good and upright. So David is asking the Lord to be who he is for him as he deals with the sin and the troubles of his heart. He's asking Yahweh to be the God of Psalm 25 for him. Merciful, steadfast love, goodness, upright, faithful. David wants Yahweh to be all the things that he's already mentioned in this psalm. To stand by him. He needs the merciful God by his side. He needs God's steadfast love. He needs the good God to be his friend. He needs the upright God to preserve him. He needs the faithful God to remain faithful to him. And I suppose you need the same God too this morning. He's there beside you, even as you wait, as you go through the trials, the suffering, the sorrow. He's there. Did you notice that David also uses that word for waiting that we saw in the first part of this psalm several weeks ago? The Hebrew word that's used in verse 3 and here in verse 21 is the word kavah, and it captures the idea of the, the, the tension of waiting. In all the Semitic languages of the ancient Near East, this word and all its related forms have meanings that suggest tension or twisting, like like something's being twisted up in knots. There's a reason why in the ancient Near East, one of the words for weight is related to the word for rope or cord or to twist in knots. There's another word for weight I'll tell you about in a few weeks. But this word is related to the word for rope or cord. Why? Because when we have to wait on the Lord to intervene, like David here, our souls are all twisted and tied up in knots. When we have to wait on the Lord, there's tension. We're being twisted like a rope, twisted up in knots. Our souls and often our stomachs are all twisted up in knots. But it's there in that waiting, in that twisting, in that tension, it's there that the Lord meets us. It's there that our friend comes alongside us. It's there that we feel his intimate care and we come to know him more. When your guilt is great and your heart is enlarged by all the troubles and you're twisted up in knots, you come to know him more intimately. Maybe all you can pray today is, Jesus, stand by me and strengthen me. Jesus, stand by me and strengthen me. That's okay. And he will. He will stand by you and strengthen you. Someone here today needs to hear that. Someone here needs to hear, Jesus will stand by you and he will strengthen you as you go through what you're going through. Trust him. Let's pray. Jesus, we do trust you. Where else could we go? Who else could we go to? Stand by us and strengthen us, we pray. May your integrity, Jesus, may your uprightness preserve us as we wait and twist in this tension So we wait for you to answer our prayers. Stand by us and strengthen us. 
Some of us here are all twisted up in knots. We need you. Help us. Some of us need to rekindle our friendship with you, Jesus. Some of us need to rekindle our first love. Help us. Some of us, all of us, need your mercy because our guilt is great. And we say, forgive us. Have mercy, Lord. Let not our hearts be troubled, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.